welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast, Patriotic American Citizen. I'm Ted Flint on the BMG Network. As most of you have heard by now, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, got his home raided, his home in Mar-a-Lago. Now, it was a pre-dawn raid by the FBI. And I'll just read you the former president's statement from earlier today. He said, or from Monday, actually, nothing like this has ever before happened to a president of the United States, is what he wrote in a statement. After working and cooperating with the relevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. It is prosecutorial misconduct, the weaponization of the justice system, and an attack by radical left Democrats who desperately don't want me to run for president in 24, especially based on recent polls, and who will likewise do anything to stop Republicans and conservatives in the upcoming midterm elections. This, I believe, this raid was politically motivated. Now, some on the left are having an issue with the word raid. They're saying it wasn't a raid to execute a search warrant is not a raid. Well, I disagree. This, and, and you know, Trump said, said as much in his statement, this kind of, these kinds of tactics or this kind of tactic is something that you see in Marxist countries, in third world banana republics, not in the United States of America. We have a constitutional republic. I know that Democrats and the liberals hate the constitution. They hate to, to use the word republic. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. But now the president, former president, and I think he's still the president, but that's another story. America has now become one of those countries, broken third world countries, corrupt at a level not seen before. And he also said the FBI broke into his safe. Now this is over Trump running again. And they're trying to tie the Democrats and the media is very compliant. They want to tie this to January 6th. And they, I think they want people on the far right to do something. They want another January 6th as a pretext to uh, to clamp down further on our civil liberties. And we should not do that. We shouldn't fall for the bait. And then Trump went on to say, what's the difference between this and Watergate, where operatives broke into the Democratic National Committee? Here in reverse, Democrats broke into the home of the 45th president of the United States. We'll get to Watergate in a minute because today is August 9th as I record this. It's the anniversary of Richard Nixon's resignation. You know, I was watching today for about an hour and a half. I watched some of the David Frost-Nixon interviews, which took place in 1977. If you ever get a chance to watch some of those interviews, I think they did 12 hours of interviews. It was absolutely fascinating. Richard Nixon was a fascinating man. Some say corrupt to the core. I would disagree. He made some misjudgments. He made some uh, he made mistakes, certainly, but he says in the interviews, if you watch them, that he never, ever took part in the break-in. He had no knowledge of the break-in. Now, the cover-up was something else, and we'll get to the uh, the Watergate break-in in just a bit and what it meant for the uh, the Nixon White House. So Trump was in New York City at Trump Tower when this raid was carried out. The left doesn't want to call it a raid. I know NPR, I was listening to NPR Whole way home today from work. 45 minutes of NPR. I made myself listen to it. And they and they led with a couple of p- pieces of audio from Mark Levin last night and from Laura Ingram. And they referred to the, the, the uh, conservatives as right-wing media. And they say Fox is the ringleader of the right-wing media. What, what would they term themselves? The mainstream media? They're the left-wing media. And, you know, they played a, a cut from Levin out of context. But he said, look, this is an assault 
a frontal assault on our constitutional republic. Those weren't his exact words, but I think this is unbelievable what happened here. Last week, Charles Grassley, he's a senator from Iowa, Republican, said that whistleblowers from the Washington field office alleged the agent in charge of their office, Timothy Thibault, helped cover up derogatory information on the Biden family's influence peddling operation. He was also deeply involved in the decision to open up the investigation against Trump of so-called fake electors. This is all part of this. It's all part of the Trump-Russia conspiracy, January 6th. This is just another another uh, piece of that pie. That's all it is. Look, the feds don't want certain information to be discovered, evidently. So I guess these FBI agents are probing the discovery of 15 boxes of records containing classified information allegedly taken to Mar-a-Lago at the end of Trump's presidency. Federal law prohibits the removal of classified documents to unauthorized locations. Now, you could argue, and I think Trump has has maybe argued this or will, that he had the authority as president to declassify documents. I haven't heard that discussed much. But Miranda Devine, one of the fine columnists in the country today, said, according to her sources, the documents taken from Trump's house were boxed up by the General Services Administration at the end of Trump's term and mailed to him. And the FBI, according to Devine, has had for months, has had access to these documents. Why did they wait until now for this raid, which is overkill in my view? Meanwhile, the House January 6th committee is investigating Trump allies regarding Trump's challenge of the results of the 2020 election. They're still after him for that. And Merrick Garland is the AG, and I guess, he, obviously, he had full knowledge of this of this uh, raid. He is the top law enforcement official in the land. I guess Biden didn't have any knowledge of it. I wouldn't doubt that. He doesn't have knowledge of a lot of things. But it's a weaponiza- weaponization of the of the law enforcement in this country. That's what else can how else can you look at it? GOP leader Kevin McCarthy, he is uh, the he- leader in the Senate, said that when Republicans take back the House, when they take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of this department. We'll follow the facts and leave no stone unturned. That's what he's saying now. If and when the Republicans do, and I believe they will take over in in uh, November, January, to be official. Uh, we'll see what happens. They had control before in Trump's first two years. Democrats were uh, uh, the minority party in both houses. But anyway, McCarthy said, Attorney General, you better preserve your documents and clear your calendar. The Dems, though, can, they can wreak a lot, and they will wreak a lot of havoc in the ensuing five plus months. I mean, we have uh, 90 days before the elections in November. Then you have two more months before Republicans take over. So we have five months, basically, before Republicans can do something about this. And, you know, uh, Newt Gingrich, who I heard on Fox earlier today, I think he was on with Hannity, he said the raid is about intimidating anyone who is a threat to the power of the administrative state. Joe Biden, this is like we're living in Soviet Russia. Do you realize that? Our rights are being trampled upon daily. Most people don't care. They don't know any better. And that's the way the administration likes it keep everybody dumb and happy. Just pass out money, you know, pass out cash like we've been. And now we're, you know, deep in debt and and the inflation rate is higher than it's been in 41 years. But Gingrich, you know, Newt Gingrich, I have my issues with him, but he is obviously a very brilliant man. He said he's former Speaker of the House, by the way, for those of you uh, keeping track. Gingrich said it's the first big 
socialist government machine at a national level. This machine is going to die if Trump wins. And they know they're going to die because they have to survive on corruption. Corrupt to the core. Joe Biden is the most corrupt man we've ever had in the White House. Forget about... Who's the guy in the 20s there? Warren Harding, he allowed a lot of corruption in his administration. There have been corrupt administrations throughout history. But Biden, Joe Biden would make Warren Harding look like John Paul II. You can't be in Washington for almost 50 years and not be corrupt and not know who the players are. You know, Biden may be a, a doddering old man, but he, he's got something on everybody. But this administration has authorized something that has never before happened in American history. And I could give you quotes from the rest of these people, DeSantis and whatnot. And I, one guy I really uh, admire is Alan Dershowitz. Uh, he's an attorney, Harvard law professor. He served as legal counsel for the president, President Trump, in his first impeachment trial, said a warrant cannot be issued if a subpoena would suffice. The FBI, he said, he was on with Hannity as well, must have a high level of cause demonstrating the evidence would have been destroyed. They darn well better have the smoking gun proof, and he doesn't see it happening. That's from Dershowitz. But Biden has weaponized the U.S. government, the FBI, CIA, no doubt, and Homeland Security for his political purposes. This doesn't bode well for the midterms. Democrats are going to cheat. They're going to try to cheat and steal the election again. Now, we're in the middle of a war, folks. It's not a shooting war. Not yet. But we're at war with the left in this country. It's the enemy within. I think I was reading on Red State that uh, what's being leaked to the media and the press is that they were after documents, they, the FBI, after documents that possibly violated the Presidential Records Act. There's no conspiracy, by the way. There's no January 6th conspiracy. The Democrats are using the power of the federal law enforcement apparatus They're trying to take Trump out with selective enforcement of provisions that are normally handled in a civil, not a criminal matter. This was nothing criminal took place. Why would the FBI have to raid a former president's home? And this is not a coincidence, and none of it is justified. Now, I'm going to read you something by uh, somebody by the name of Banshi, who writes for Red State. Even if Trump was in possession of some documents that needed to be archived, that is the kind of thing that has historically been dealt with in court, not with an FBI raid. And the president, former president, is is cooperating fully. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden, and this was pointed out in Red State as well, Hunter Biden has been implicated in multiple federal crimes. And his house hasn't been raided. Hillary Clinton was proven to have illegally retained classified information on a private server. Has her house ever been raided? No. You know, Nancy Pelosi said, you know, nobody's above the law. It's got nothing to do with Trump being above the law. Different set of rules being applied depending on what political party the alleged perpetrator belongs to. It's corruption, plain and simple. And I think the Biden administration would love nothing more than another January 6th moment before the midterms. They're they're itching for a fight. Now, This is unbelievable. I can't spend the entire program on it. I want to get to Richard Nixon and uh, Watergate was was nothing but a third-rate break-in. And the the election was never in doubt. The election of 72 was never in doubt. Nixon, there was no proof that he ever 
took part in the in the actual uh, crime, the actual break-in, there may be some speculation, and, and he maintains he never knew of the cover-up. But I should pro- probably, and I have, a, I think I have a cut from Nixon. We'll get we'll get to that cut in just a minute. I want to talk a little bit though about the four hundred thirty billion dollar tax and spend bill, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, passed by the Senate Sunday. It's radical and destructive. And these Democrats have a a penchant for, uh, and government in general has a penchant for naming bills that do the exact opposite of what they claim the bills will do. I'll give you an example. The Affordable Care Act. There's nothing affordable about the Obamacare law that was foisted on us. Build back better. Nothing's been built back better. It's been torn down and destroyed. What Trump and what Americans have built was destroyed by this administration, a lot of it. I'll read you uh, something here from WorldNet Daily. Art Moore has a piece in here, and it's very, it's interesting. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time because you, you, I don't want your eyes glazing over or your ears, in this case, glazing over. But the uh, chairman of the Republican Study Committee, his name is uh, Banks, looking for his name here, J- uh, Jim Banks, Republican from Indiana. He's got this uh, list of the, the most radical elements of this $430 billion uh, boondoggle. It's a climate and health care and tax overhaul. 5150 passed on a party line vote in the Senate. Of course, the president of the Senate is the vice president. She broke the tie. But Banks noted that the Penn Wharton budget model found the bill would not curb inflation. And critics have pointed out that increasing spending during a recession makes inflation worse. So why do it? Maybe that's why they did it, because it makes things worse. But among the policies, the bill's giveaway to green energy would increase American reliance on China for rare earth materials. We're already dependent on China for those same kinds of materials. The bill contains many budget gimmicks and fake offsets to mask the cost of the bill. When accounting for these budget tricks, the alleged deficit reduction bill would add $114 billion in debt over 10 years. Legislation would add $80 billion in funds to supersize the IRS's ability to audit Americans. That's another thing. 87,000 additional IRS agents. As somebody put on Facebook, why not add 87,000 more border control officers? Because that would protect the nation. That would benefit the nation. That's why they don't do that. The Inflation Reduction Act contains a socialist price control regime to aim to lower drug prices. They'll say it's, they're going to lower drug prices for people on the margins and for seniors. Don't believe it. It expands Obamacare by extending enhanced Obamacare subsidies. It creates an environmental justice Solar and Wind Capacity Limitation Program. Environmental justice? What does that mean? It means hang on to your wallets. $8.45 billion to further environmental justice in agriculture. $3 billion for the Department of Transportation to undertake projects to address racism in infrastructure. $5 billion to support $250 billion in Department of Energy loan guarantees and loan refinancing for green energy infrastructure and remediation activities. It's it's a boondoggle. Tax and spend, it's just another redistribution of wealth. And this president is presiding over an economy that is simultaneously inflicting hyperinflation and negative growth on the American people. It's called stagflation, as I talked about in last week's show. The U.S. economy has not experienced this kind of a one-two punch since Jimmy Carter 41 years ago. But the president assures us 
We're trying to make ends meet. Some of us have two jobs, some more than two jobs. He said the U.S. economy is on the right path. Well, it's obviously not on the right path. So what do we do? We're three months away from making a course correction, and that course correction is going to happen one way or the other. Hopefully, we can make it via the ballot box. That's one of three boxes we can use to protect our republic. The other two being the jury box and the cartridge box, as Frederick Douglass pointed out. And I agree totally. I mean, I think we're coming to it. And I, I don't think we're headed in the uh, we're, I think we're headed to some real trouble in uh, in the coming months. And we need to pray that everybody stays calm and collected and makes the changes that will be made, hopefully, via the ballot box. Because there are a lot of angry Americans out there. All right, there's another piece here to this puzzle I was going to get into, but we just don't have a lot of time. I want to talk a little bit about Richard Nixon. I want to air for you maybe three or four minutes of the end of his interview with David Frost. And he talks about his regrets. I think Richard Nixon, uh, most of what he did was was positive. He was a liberal Republican, as I see it. He was not a conservative. He began, uh, he reached out to Red China and uh, furthered relations with Red China and with uh, Russia. And for that, he was criticized by many people on the right. I remember Richard Nixon back in 74 and final scene at the White House door and the staff lined up to say goodbye. Tiny tear in lie. He said, nobody knows me. Nobody understands. These little people were good to me. Oh, I'm gonna shake some hands. Somebody light them up. Light them all up. Light them up. Light them all up. Won't you light them up? Light them all up. That's James Taylor. And a song that he wrote oh, back in the late 80s about uh, Richard Nixon. And it, it cleverly done, I thought. You know, in the final hours of his presidency, Richard Nixon addressed the nation. I recall very vividly, it was August 9th of 1974. And he had to make the uh, trip. He had to walk from the White House to a, an awaiting helicopter. And it was an awkward moment. So he lined up his staff and friends, everybody politically who knew him, and he had a, quite a few uh, family and friends on hand there. So he was shaking hands as he was walking from the White House to the uh, to the helicopter for that final trip out. I'll never forget it. It was, uh, you know, he lined up his his friends and, and colleagues, so to speak, and he flew off into the sunset. It was an unfortunate uh, turn of events, Watergate, because... Um, I really think Nixon had the best interests of the country uh, at heart. I really do. He was a Quaker, brought up a Quaker, and I think he, he really tried to do the right thing. But he was, you know, we, we've all heard the, the adjectives uh, describing Richard Nixon. He was, like most politicians, very insecure. He was ruthless at times, cunning, scheming, all those things. But when he was in the White House, I felt as though we had a real leader. I felt safe. With Nixon in the White in the White House, compare him with some of the recent occupants of the Oval Office, and it's just—he was a giant. He he dominated the political scene for for you know two decades. And uh, former Vice President to uh, Dwight Eisenhower, he was a 
I guess he ran for governor of California, lost that in 1962, lost his uh, first bid for the White House against John Kennedy in a very close election. Then he finally gets to the top of the heap. He, he, he you know, wins in 1968, landslide, bigger landslide in 1972, and then Watergate happens. So if you ever get a chance, want to read a good book for the rest of the summer, I, I would suggest this uh, book by David Frost. I gave them a sword, kind of a behind-the-scenes, blow-by-blow of the uh, of the Nixon interviews. Fascinating book, and the, the interviews themselves were just unbelievable. Some really great television. I think they're still the highest-rated uh, news interview programs ever. They uh, were aired in 1977, and uh, but Nixon talks about... The, the cover-up, and the fa- he doesn't think he was guilty of any impeachable crimes. Errors in judgment, yes. But Nixon believes, I think until his dying day, that he was not guilty of any impeachable offense, and he said as much in this interview. Richard Nixon from 1977. I have impeached myself. That speaks for itself. How do you mean I have impeached myself? By resigning. That was a voluntary impeachment. Now, what does that mean in terms of whether I, uh, you're wanting me to say that I am participated in an illegal cover-up? No. Now, when you come to the period, and this is the critical period, when you come to the period of March 21st on, when Dean gave his legal opinion uh, that certain things, actions taken by Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, etc., and even by himself, amounted to a legal cover-up and so forth, then I was in a very different position. And during that period, I will admit that I started acting as lawyer for their defense. I will admit that acting as lawyer for their defense, I was not prosecuting the case. I will admit that during that period, rather than acting primarily in my role as the chief and law enforcement officer of the United States of America, or at least with responsibility for law enforcement, because the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer, but as the one with the chief responsibility for seeing that the laws of the United States are enforced, that I did not meet that responsibility. And to the extent that I did not meet that responsibility, to the extent that within the law, and in some cases going right to the edge of the law, in trying to advise Ehrlichman, Haldeman, and all the rest, as to how best to present their cases, because I thought they were legally innocent, that I came to the edge. And under the circumstances, I would have to say that a reasonable person could call that a cover-up. I didn't think of it as a cover-up. I didn't intend it to cover up. Let me say, if I intended to cover up, believe me, I'd have done it. You know how I could have done it so easily? I could have done it immediately after the election simply by giving clemency to everybody. And the whole thing would have gone away. I couldn't do that because I said clemency was wrong. But now we come down to the key point. And let me answer it in my own way about how do I feel about the American people? I mean, uh, whether I should have resigned earlier or what I should say to them now. Well, that forces me to 
rationalize now and give you a carefully prepared crop statement? I didn't expect this question, frankly, though, so I'm not going to give you that, but I can tell you this. Oh, did I? I can tell you this. I think I said it all in one of those moments that that you're not thinking. Sometimes you say the things that are really in your heart. When you're thinking in advance, then you say things that, you know, are tailored to the audience. I had a lot of difficult meetings those last days before I resigned. And, and the most difficult one, and, and the only one where I, I broke into tears, frankly, uh, except for that very brief session with Erlingman up at Camp David. It was the first time I cried since Eisenhower died. I met with all of my key supporters just a half hour before going on television. For 25 minutes, we all sat around, Oval Office, men that I'd come to Congress with, Democrats and Republicans, about half and half. Wonderful men. At the very end, after saying, well, thank you for all your support during these tough years. Thank you for the, uh, particularly for what you've done to help us end the draft, bring home the POWs, and have a chance for building a generation of peace, which I could see the, the dream that I had possibly being shattered. And thank you for your friendship little acts of friendship over the years, you know, you sort of remembering you with a birthday card and the rest. Then suddenly you haven't got much more to say and half the people around the table were crying. Les Aarons, Illinois, bless him, he was just shaking, sobbing. And uh, I just can't stand seeing somebody else cry. And that ended it for me. And I just, well, I must say, I sort of cracked up, started to cry, pushed my chair back, and then I blurted it out. And I said, I'm sorry. I just hope I haven't left you, let you down. Well, when I said, I just hope I haven't let you down, that said it all. I had. I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government, the dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. Most of all, I let down an opportunity that I would have had for two and a half more years to proceed on great projects and programs for building a lasting peace, which has been my dream, as you know, from our first interview in 1968, before I had any thought I might even win that year. I didn't tell you I didn't think I might win, but I wasn't sure. Yep, I, I, I let the American people down. And I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. Richard Nixon, from the interviews he did with David Frost in 1977, he was uh, 
compared to what we have today in the Oval Office, he was a giant. Intellectually, one of the brightest presidents we've ever had, uh, near the top of his class at Duke University Law School, and uh, an intriguing figure, Richard Nixon. I remember going through junior high school, and I think he resigned in 74. I think it was a freshman in high school, and all the teachers were, you know, Nixon haters, as most people in academia were and still are. And uh, But it was a fascinating time in, in our history. That's all we have time for, folks. Thank you very much for tuning us in. If you like this program, hit like, hit share, and please hit subscribe and share the program with your friends on social media. So And listen to all the fine programs we have for you on the BMG Network. We have, in addition to the Pac-Man podcast, we have The Essentials with my daughter, Maddie Flint, and uh, The Ken Burns Show on, I think, Mondays, and The Adrian Ross podcast on Tuesdays. Thanks for tuning us in, and if the Lord wills it, we will talk to you soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced and edited in the BMG Studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more episodes of the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the bmgnetwork.com or go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint. Thank you.